With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch Special Needs Talk Radio Network. We provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs and child adolescent mental health communities. Thank you for joining us. Are you a parent with a newly diagnosed child with autism? Are you looking for answers on how you can help your child? The online training course, Discovering Behavioral Intervention, is the answer. Real parents take you through applied behavior analysis in 10 step-by-step modules. Learn more at youdiscovering.org and follow them on Twitter at youdiscovering. As always, we are very proud to have Mayor Johnson sponsoring tonight's show. Mayor Johnson is the world's special education super source. The Mayor Johnson sale is on. Their year-end sale is giving you drastic savings on hundreds of products. You can find them at mayorjohnson.com. That's mayor-johnson.com. And visit them on Twitter at Mayor Johnson. Again, thank you for joining us. And now, on to tonight's interview. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clash. The Coffee Clash and Special Needs Talk Radio Network feature outstanding programming for the special needs community. Our team of hosts provide educational interviews. Our shows are not designed to provide listeners with specific or personal medical, legal, or professional service or advice. Parents of children with health issues should always consult their health care provider for medical advice, medications, or treatment. Any show discussing rights and law for special needs children and special education are presented as general information and not legal advice. Special Needs Coffee Class Limited does not promote any hosts or guests' individual practice, programs, treatments, or products. We thank you for joining us and are proud to provide excellence in broadcasting for the special needs community. And now, on to the interview. Good evening. Welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Marianne Russo. Um, I'd like to thank our sponsors for tonight, You Discovering and Mayor Johnson. Um, if you are a parent with a child who's newly diagnosed with autism and you're looking to find um, a treatment, to, uh, an online training course, Discovering Behavioral Interventions is the answer. Real parents take you through applied behavioral analysis in 10 step-by-step modules, and you can learn all about it on their brand-new website. Go to you the letter U, discovering.org. And also, of course, our sponsor, Mayor Johnson, which is your special education super source. Mayor Johnson is the makers of Boardmaker, and they've recently released an e-catalog on their website. It features hundreds of great products. So go on over to mayor-johnson.com and see what they have going on. 
Today we have a really great interview on a topic that most people don't even know about, never mind speak about, which is trichotillomania. And trichotillomania is or was considered an anxiety-based disorder suffered by children and teens. And we have Dr. Marla Deibler with us tonight. She is a clinical psychologist and nationally recognized expert in anxiety disorders and obsessive-compulsive spectrum disorders, including trichotillomania, um, and other body-focused repetitive behaviors, which I'm going to be speaking to her about because I've never really heard that phrase before. She specializes in obsessive-compulsive disorder, hoarding, tick disorders. She is the founder and director of the Center for Emotional Health of Greater Philadelphia in New Jersey, an outpatient facility specializing in providing evaluations and evidence-based cognitive behavioral therapies, which... It's just fantastic. I love it. So you've seen her on the many TV shows, the Dr. Oz Show, Hoarder, CBS, and we're just thrilled to have her with us. So Dr. Deibler, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, first I want to talk about what trichotillomania is because I think a lot of people don't even, have probably never heard of it, and it affects 2 to 5% of the population. It does. Trichotillomania is a disorder in which individuals pull out their hair, and they pull hair to the point in which there is a resulting noticeable hair loss. Yeah, you know, it was. It, I, I know about trichotillomania only because I had a um, an au pair one summer, and she came and everything, you know, seemed fine. She seemed like she was a little bit anxious, and then after a few weeks, I noticed all her eyebrows were gone, and then I noticed her arm hairs uh, were gone. And, um, you know, if you didn't know the signs, you really wouldn't even know to look for it. Um, You know, I'd like to talk about how it's categorized right now. In the DSM right now, it's listed under – how is it listed now? Because that's going to change in a few weeks. It is. It's currently classified as an impulse control disorder. But um, the individuals that um, study and treat trichotillomania have for years been saying that it it just doesn't seem to fit with the other disorders in the category. And really it seems much more related to obsessive-compulsive disorder and some other kinds of what we call body-focused repetitive behaviors, which are other kinds of repetitive self-grooming behaviors that involve pulling or picking or scraping or, or biting one's own hair, skin, or nails that result in damage to the body. So that would include things like skin picking, which is going to be a new diagnosis in the DSM-5, nail biting, which is a socially acceptable form of uh, of a BFRB, of a body-focused repetitive behavior, or lip biting or cheek chewing. Um, so that's really where we feel like it belongs. So in the new DSM, it's it's not going to be an impulse control disorder. It's going to be in a new category, which is called obsessive compulsive and related disorders. You know, I never re- even realized that nail biting or, um, you know, scraping or any of those were actually something diagnosable. I didn't even realize It can be. I mean, if you think about it, all of these behaviors kind of fall on a continuum. Mm -hmm. Um, They're, you know, we all engage in some of these things to some extent, like, for example, skin picking. Everyone picks at their skin a little bit from time to time. But to what point does it become a problem? Well, there there certainly is uh, a disorder in which, you know, skin picking can be a very significant problem, causing scars and lesions and um, very significant personal sequelae. So there certainly can be, you know, a clinically significant level of that, you know, seemingly normal behavior. 
Right. You know, when, when you were saying before that it, right now it's categorized as an impulsive type disorder and now it's going to be transferred over and it does seem to be better fit into the OCD um, spectrum. But um, would you categorize this more as um, involuntary, like ticks? Is this more neurobiological? Um, or is this something where they, they do have more control over it? That's a really wonderful question, it's, and it's one that we don't have a real clear answer to. If you look at some imaging studies, imaging studies when you compare individuals that have trichotillomania compared to individuals that have Tourette's disorder, complex tick disorder, mm-hmm. for example, um, you'll see that you know functionally, structurally uh, in the brain, it seems to look a lot like a tick. And interestingly, uh, a recent uh, medication study of olanzapine, which is a uh, psychiatric medication that is an antipsychotic. It's often used to treat tick disorders. Um, There was very significantly positive results when (laughs) you give it to an individual with trichotillomania. Um, So um, we think that it, it it could possibly be like a complex tick, but um, we don't really know enough because really trichotillomania research is still really very much in its infancy. So we're not confident enough in the amount of data that we have to be able to pretty clearly say that. Right. So you don't know then if it's more of a dopamine or, you know, which transmitter, uh, neurotransmitter is really being affected then? No, we don't know. We uh, we do know that, that the medications that affect serotonin don't seem to help very much. Yeah, that's what it sounded like when you were talking about the olanzapine. Yeah, olanzapine affects dopamine, and that seems mm-hmm. to um, potentially be helpful, and perhaps we'll talk a little bit of that, about that with medications, but um, unfortunately yeah, we... there's, such, there's such a side effect profile with those that it's not really commonly prescribed. Right, you know, and I think that's the struggle with... Um, you know, a lot of parents dealing with children with obsessive-compulsive disorder because oftentimes, you know, even when you give them, a, you know, an SSRI or an S, um, NRI, um, you know, sometimes it really just doesn't give them the quality of life. I actually just had someone on um, that hasn't even aired yet um, that they're talking about using um, an antibiotic um, that they found may be helpful as an add-on. Um, it's very difficult, and we're going to talk about, you know, how cognitive behavioral therapy really is key. But first I want to talk about how this um, really pertains to children and teens. Because um, I read that you said that the onset typically occurs between the ages of 11 and 13, although some children begin to pull at a much younger age. That was really surprising to me. So, um, you know, what are the first signs? Do you usually see something in very early childhood, not necessarily hair pulling, but maybe some obsessive-compulsive features? Um, It depends. Hair pulling is really um, very different for each individual. But people tend to, you know, there seems to be kind of a an onset that seems to be kind of prepubescent. So, you know, between 11 and 13, 9 and 13 seems to be the most typical age of onset. Sometimes we do see hair pulling or um, other kinds of uh, behaviors that seem kind of like precursors to that, like hair twirling or, or rubbing or perhaps even pulling earlier. Um, between the ages of even in infancy up to age five. And we consider that something that may be something different. We actually refer to it as baby trick um, because it seems to be uh, a purely self-soothing behavior um, and it seems to be more transient than this, you know, the trichotillomania that we frequently refer to as, you know, this one that seems to onset a little bit later on in childhood and it seems to be more chronic and more persistent. 
extent. Yeah, you know, that's interesting that you say that because as you were talking initially, I was thinking to myself, um, you know, could it be more like a, you know, a stem or, um, you know, is I was trying to think in my, my mind, is this, um, so if it's self-regulating or if it's it's something that you do to calm, um, is it more similar to like cutting or self-harm or is it more like um, a stim where it's more like a comforting movement? Um, it's it's a little bit of all and a li- and and none of uh, and, and none of any of that as well. Um, right. It is not related to self mutilation. It's not at all related to cutting behavior um, or any kind of intentional self harm. That's actually um, a pretty common uh, mis like myth out there. Right. That's why I wanted to get that out there. Yeah. Yeah. It is a myth. Um, it seems as though individuals would do this. Um, as a self-harm behavior, because a lot of self-harm behaviors seem to be intentionally inflicted in this way. However, people that that do this behavior, that pull their hair, or or even that have these related behaviors like pick their skin, don't experience it in the same way as those of us who don't. So, for example, if you ask someone who pulls their hair, they will tell you that it is not hurtful to them. They don't experience it as painful. Something about their, uh, you know, pain sensory system, um, mm-hmm. they don't experience it in the same way. In fact, most of the time, they experience it as a sense of uh, pleasure or satisfaction or relief, or um, if not that, then perhaps um, just simply nothing at all or not painful. And so, you know, they really experience it physiologically in a, in a very different way than those of us who are not, um, you know, wired to do this. Yeah. Um, you know, since you were saying that, you know, there's no pain, I was wondering if, um, you know, with, with, I guess we'll just call it, you know, classic OCD in children and adults, there's usually the fear that something bad will happen. Um, do, do you find any of that um, with the trichotillomania? That's a great question, too. Um, no, actually. Originally, when trichotillomania was first sort of being discussed in the literature, it was being discussed as though it was this obsessive-compulsive behavior, that this was a compulsion and that there must be some kind of obsessive worry or thought kind of tied to this compulsion. And there really isn't. There really isn't any kind of obsession behind it. In fact, um, there are many different things that can contribute to pulling behavior. Um, sometimes it can be self-soothing, getting back to another question you had mentioned. So mm-hmm. it can be a self-soothing behavior. Um, it can be, you know, affect regulating. It can be a way to kind of regulate one's level of arousal or, um, you know, emotional state. It certainly can be for some people, but for other people, not necessarily. So there are a lot of different reasons why people pull and what maintains the behavior. But um, it it is definitely a behavior that becomes sort of um, reinforced because it's not p- painful and because it is satisfying or relieving or, um, you know, pleasurable in some right. way. And yeah. so, you know, the, the long-term negative consequences, unfortunately, are outweighed by the immediate uh, positive experiences for them. Yeah, you know, later on I want to go into a little bit about self-image, but, um, you know, at younger ages, um, males and females tend to pull their hair um, and exhibit this at equal ratios, where as they get older, uh, females pull much more frequently in adulthood. And so there, there was two questions I had with that then. Is it, do you think that since it's between the ages of 11 and 13, 
and since it's more females as they get older, do you find any type of a hormonal um, dysregulation or puberty? Do you, what are the triggers? Do you, do you, it do, could you know, be. do they know of any? Uh, we don't know exactly. Um, there are a lot of different things that that sort of trigger the behavior for each individual in terms of making it, you know, exacerbating it or uh, right. making it more likely to happen, making it less likely happen. I mean, in terms of its onset. You know, it's it's really difficult to say. There's actually a there's an unpublished study. It was a it was a poster at one point, but there's an unpublished study um, that I did with some of my colleagues when I was a, a pre-doctoral student at uh, the National Institute of Mental Health, where we looked at just that. We looked at um, how female hormones may affect hair pulling, and what we found was that there seemed to be a pretty significant relationship from self-report anyway. People right. reported, at least from their own perceptions, that um, their hormones seem to affect pulling. And we do see this sometimes in clinical practice. We see sometimes that there are adolescents who sometimes if they get on birth control pills, it seems to help a bit with their pulling. There are other people who seem to sort of go into uh, you know, pulling, I guess you could say, remission during pregnancies mm-hmm. or other people that seem to seem to get a better control of it once they hit menopause. It's, it's difficult go. to say. Yeah, we don't, we don't really know yet. There may be a hormonal relationship, but we're not clear about what that might be. You know, and I also hear uh, very often how, um, you know, different times during a, a teen cycle affects the OCD, making it better or worse. But then again, you know, the hormones often, you know, play into all of this. But um, the course of the disorder waxes and wanes, which seems very neurobiological, you know, when I'm thinking about it. Um, you know, do you usually see it wax and waning where you have long periods of remission, or is it like everyone is, is different? Everyone is different. There are people who you know, kind of consistently struggle with it, and then other people who may go years without pulling and then all of a sudden may have some life stressor that sort of brings about some of these, you know, thoughts and uh, urges again. It's it's difficult to say. Everyone is very different in terms of what um, triggers the behavior and, and what tends to uh, help them to gain more control over it. It must be so difficult, you know, because I'm just sure they don't understand it themselves. Um, so... We've we've talked about the the neurobiological factor involved in this, but I was wondering if there were any genetic predispositions, any other um, you know disorders that may be common in a family, as well as environmental factors. Yeah, that we do believe that there are genetic factors involved, and we believe there's probably multiple genes involved. They haven't been identified. There have been family studies and twin studies that would suggest that um, there certainly is um, a heritability factor involved with trichotillomania, but we don't know exactly what that is yet. We haven't pinpointed what that is. Uh, We do see these body-focused repetitive behaviors occurring more often in families, especially in first-degree relatives. And then we also see other disorders from the obsessive-compulsive spectrum occurring as well in first-degree relatives as well as in, you know, the the immediate extended families as well. So we'll see OCD in the family sometimes or we'll see um, some other kinds of related problems. We'll see tick disorders and things like that. So um, these things are probably related in terms of genetics, but we don't have the specifics on how how that plays out really yet. Do environmental factors, you know, such as, you know, stress or trauma or, you know, any type of, um, you know, really upsetting events, could that trigger uh, trichotillomania, or is this just something that would have, um, you know, ran its course anyway? 
In terms of trauma, you know, that's something that was discussed pretty early on in the literature. Um, some clinicians believe that that trauma can contribute to the onset um, of trichotillomania, but, you know, the, the research really doesn't support that at all. Um, only about 5% of individuals who have trichotillomania have comorbid post-traumatic stress disorder, that's not a very high co-occurrence rate. No, not rate. at all. Right. So, yeah, so we don't really think that those two things are really related. Stress, however, um, for a lot of people, tend to exacerbate their pulling behavior. It's not an anxiety disorder in that people, it's not so simple as people pull because they're stressed. People pull for a lot of different reasons, and everyone differs, so stress might be a trigger for a significant number of people but there might be other things that trigger it as well. But right. stress is a common trigger for people, as it is for, you know, for a lot of other problems as well. Right, right. It makes anything worse. Um, you know, it's just thinking this, this also seems to me to be completely unrelated to, say, a body image disorder, because this isn't something that they, doesn't seem to be something that they're doing because they want to do it. Right. No, they they don't want to do it. In fact, they don't. They really don't want to do it at all. They, right. they want to stop, but they have a very hard time stopping the behavior. Um, no, it's it's really not a distorted bodily perception, um, unless there's some kind of, you know, comorbid uh, body dysmorphic disorder that may better explain the hair loss. But um, you very rarely see something like that. And, and the um, hair losses can be significant. You know, it's, I've been when I was researching for this interview, I was looking at some pictures of very young children and teens, and it has to be absolutely devastating. I mean, what is the emotional impact of having this? Yeah, the emotional impact is is very significant. Um, you know, all the way from from anxiety and, and depression to uh, having very poor self esteem and and poor self image to you know, feeling isolated and, and different from everyone else and odd and out of place and like you don't belong and um, people wind up sort of isolating themselves and um, sometimes um, avoiding activities because of the hair loss as well, just because they don't want people to discover it. So they, right. you know, experience such such uh, significant shame and embarrassment that they they try to hide it. They try to cover it up. So they'll go to to pretty uh, pretty extreme efforts to try to cover the hair loss or to avoid activities that might lead to the discovery of their hair loss. So it really affects every part of their daily functioning if it gets significant enough. I would imagine. And, and you know, like I said before, you know, I'm familiar with trichotillomania, but a lot of people aren't. And I think a lot of parents may just see their child pulling hairs and really not realize that this is something that's, um, you know, not within their control and is, um, you know, a disorder. Um, so I want to go forward and talk a little bit about the treatments because I've spoken, we speak all the time on the show about the importance of getting the right therapy. That Sometimes when you have a problem like this or you know, other types of, of obsessive compulsive disorder, talk therapy can just make it worse. And getting very specific cognitive behavioral therapy or habit um, reversal therapy is key. So why don't you explain to us how cognitive behavioral therapy or habit reversal therapy works for a child like this? Right. Well, um, standard cognitive behavioral therapy can be helpful in that there are some basic um, thought uh, 
there are basic ways to help people change the way that they think that can affect the way that they feel that will hopefully also affect the choices that they make and so they they hopefully also change their behaviors that's kind of the overall goal of cognitive behavioral therapy um but tr- treatment for trichotillomania specifically is a is a very specific kind of cognitive behavioral therapy and the kind that um is really most evidence based is something called habit reversal training and habit reversal training and variations of habit reversal training um are generally used for um problems like tic disorders and we use it for for problems like this as well and it generally involves three main components there's an awareness training component because as one might imagine after a while when you develop this repetitive behavior i hate to even use the word habit because it makes it sound so uh minimized right and um, purposeful yeah. yeah it does um but when when people develop these you know repetitive behaviors um they sort of become routine and when they become some routine um many people report most people report that a significant amount of time they're aware of when they're pulling but there's also a portion of time that they're unaware of it and we call this focused versus unfocused pulling so for example they might pull and be completely aware of their pulling and they're doing it anyway and not be able to stop or they may be let's say watching television and they're pulling and they don't even know that they're doing it because they're just watching TV and kind of in a zone and so awareness training becomes a very important component of habit reversal training it's very difficult to stop a behavior when you don't know you're doing it right so awareness training is very important you also talk about acceptance and commitment therapy Mm-hmm. Um, and dialectical behavioral therapy. I have never heard of either one of those. What what are those therapies? Because um, they can be effective possibly as well. Well, they're not used individually. Um, there have been a couple of studies recently as supplements to habit reversal training. So they're more like um, strategies from those therapies that are used in addition to the standard habit reversal training or or the comprehensive behavioral model of treatment, which is sort of a a well-developed version of habit reversal. Um, So what they are, they are newer forms of cognitive behavioral therapies, or um, sometimes they're referred to as third-wave cognitive behavioral therapies. Acceptance and commitment therapy um, is a process by which Individuals are essentially asked to experience their urges and to pay attention to them and accept their urges without acting on them. So it's essentially a sort of mindfulness kind of based approach mm-hmm. um, and learning to sort of tolerate and experience what they feel without acting and, and pulling, essentially. Yeah, it's almost like an exposure and response to a, an aura or a feeling um, versus, you know, avoiding something. You know? Yeah, it's sort of um, it's it's a little bit more of a, a mindful way to approach a problem. You know, to be aware of it, to observe it, but not respond to it, and certainly not negatively. Um, and then dialectical behavior therapy is a treatment that has been um, 
uh, developed um, as essentially originally a treatment for borderline personality disorder or self-injurious behaviors. But um, basically the goals of dialectical behavior therapy is to help people modulate their emotion regulation. So some of the components of dialectical behavior therapy, or DBT as we refer to it, really focused on this idea of emotion regulation and developing distress tolerance and um, interpersonal effectiveness and, again, this idea of mindfulness. And so these components can be really helpful as strategies, essentially, that can be used as components of treatment. How early could a treatment like this be um, initiated on a child? Um, Well, it depends. I mean, you can use um, these kinds of behavioral treatments like habit reversal training um, very, very young, very young. Um, But the strategies that you choose um, as components of the intervention will differ based on the child's age. So, for example, when it comes to interventions, what we typically do, um, we use the COMB model here. We use the comprehensive behavioral model um, developed by um, Charles Mansueto, Dr. Mansueto and Mm -hmm. colleagues um, in in Washington, D.C., and that's actually being clinical trialed right now uh, at American University. Um, And what what they essentially do is um, they find, they sort of outline, uh, we sort of outline what it is, in the sequence of the pattern that each individual pulls. What is it that is the first step in essentially inciting the urge to pull, all the way through pulling and its consequences? And then finding those triggers and um, learning to respond to those triggers essentially differently through what we call competing responses to do something that's essentially incompatible with pulling, Um, So, for example, things that you can't do at the same time as pulling. Or we might manipulate the environment in some way called stimulus control so that perhaps the urge to do it may not be provoked in the same way, in the way that it usually is in that pattern. Um, And so when we come up with ideas for interventions, those are just some examples of some things we might do. Um, When we come up with ideas for interventions, With a younger child, we're going to choose more behaviorally oriented things that a parent can do. So with a young child, a young child isn't going to be able to monitor their behavior themselves. They're not going to be able to, um, you know, implement, Mm -hmm. like, strategies like, you know, journaling, for example. They're not going to be able to do those things. But a parent might be able to monitor the behavioral the behavior at a younger age um, in in middle, uh, middle childhood to create an incentive system to reward kids for using the strategies that they learn in therapy is super helpful um, and and motivating. Um, And then, you know, with little tiny kids, uh, what we do is purely behavioral things that the parents can completely uh, do to help them, just incompatible behaviors. We might have them, for example, if they um, pull their hair, for example, in bed at night while going to sleep, we might have them... Um, put gloves on their children at night before bed or put Band-Aids on their fingers mm-hmm. or uh, do things that make it a little bit harder for them to, to pull to try to break the pattern. 
And you spoke before about, um, you know, the FDA has not approved any um, medications to treat trichotillomania, um, but you had mentioned the olanzapine, which is a neuroleptic. Um, and you, you, you don't find that the um, the antidepressants um, help for this, for the, the teens? Yeah, so there haven't been a whole lot of medication studies, but um, the most studied have been the SSRIs, of course. It's kind mm-hmm. of the first group of medications that's jumped to uh, right. in general for clinical trials. And, and what they found is a pretty overwhelmingly not impressive results in general for hair pulling. Now, if someone also has a comorbid anxiety disorder or a comorbid problem with depression, and perhaps those problems contribute to pulling, they might improve those problems, and that might contribute to an improvement in pulling. But in terms Mm -hmm. of affecting the pulling in and of itself, it doesn't seem to do very much for that. So we don't typically see SSRIs um, in in treatment. We really are only looking at two things right now. There are are the antipsychotics like olanzapine, and Mm -hmm. unfortunately... Um, although, you know, this recent study actually showed an 85% reported improvement, wow. which is amazing. Um, the problem Absolutely. with it is that the, the you know, very impressive long-term side effects or potential yeah. side effects of these medications like metabolic syndrome um, that you just don't want to create in these, you know, mostly young kids who come into treatment. You know, is it worth it to, to get a handle on hair pulling to create diabetes in a kid or high blood pressure? Right. It's a quality um, of life issue, I guess it really right. comes down to. And so, and so that might not be something to pursue further. They're kind of considering that. And then there's N-acetylcysteine, NAC, which is a glutamate modulator. Mm-hmm. NAC has been studied um and they have found uh, that 54%, this is a small study, but a, but a good one, uh, 56%, excuse me, of individuals um, reported an improvement in their hair pulling. So N-acetylcysteine is something you can actually buy over the counter. Yeah. And, um, you know, we often recommend that along with behavior therapy, if people want to try it, that this is something that they can try. And it seems kind of hit or miss. Some people report that it seems to really be helpful. And yeah, other my daughter don't takes it for to, her, uh, her juvenile fibromyalgia. Um, and it was helpful. Yeah, NAC is used for a lot of different things. Right. So right now, NAC is something that's being looked at, and there, um, the, it's been found to be somewhat effective in adults. There was a child study that was non-significant, but they're actually um, collecting data again at the Yale Child Study Center. Uh, Michael Block is the physician that leads that study. So he's actually going to be, um, I think, rerunning this data to, to hopefully see some different results. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I know that a lot of um, the doctors that I respect, you know, when they have young young children with these obsessive-compulsive disorders, they like to try um, maybe inositol, um, you know, yeah. at a very low dose. something, you know, much more benign um, before they jump to the um, antidepressants or these medications, unless, you know, the child does, doesn't have a quality of life. I don't know if you have another two minutes, but I did want to cover one more topic, if you can, and if not, mm-hmm. maybe we can have you back another time. Sure. Um, how would a child like this be able to function in school. Um, is it, when, you, when you look at a child or a teen, probably more a teen, with um, trichotillomania, are there any type of accommodations, um, anything that you would see in an IEP that could make it easier for them? Sometimes, yes. We, sometimes we do wind up arranging 504 plans 
Mm-hmm. Or we wind up making recommendations to be included in someone's IEP if they happen to be classified for other reasons. Because part of the strategies that we often recommend are things that can, like I had mentioned before, be competing responses for the behavior. So, for example, um, if they tend to pick at hairs that are particularly um, short and stubbly because it's new growth and they they don't like the way these short, wiry, new growth hairs feel, um, we might come up with things for them to uh, have, that have those similar textures for them to kind of manipulate in their lap. And so we want mm-hmm. them to be able to have these things in school. So we want them to be able to have these things to kind of fiddle with at their desk. They're manipulatives, essentially. But right, we might call great. them fidget toys or, you know, different things. And sometimes we make it fun. We make them, you know, it could be anything. It, sometimes kids like stretchy things. Sometimes they like rough things. Sometimes bumpy things. If they have, you know, kind of like a sensory-oriented trigger, sometimes that can be helpful for them. That's what so I was we like them say. to have that. Yeah, I was just going to say that it seems to be so sensory, and I've been doing these interviews for four years on every diagnosis imaginable, and I've yet to find one that didn't have sensory issues. I know that one of the things that people do when there's um, um, sensory issues to touch is they have a, they put a little piece of Velcro under the desk mm-hmm. so the child can just rub their finger on it, and it's very soothing, uh, you know, for them. So there's a lot of things. Um, that parents and teachers can try to brainstorm and do. Um, Dr. Dibble, I really appreciate you being with us. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, this is a disorder so many people don't know, and there's probably a lot of children out there whose parents are just have no idea they are even dealing with this. Yeah, it can be a it can be a very difficult disorder to sort of identify because right. even though it's so common, there are many, even health professionals, who really don't know anything about it. Exactly. So, you know, I'm really glad that you came and the information was fantastic. Um, where can um, my listeners go to find you? Do you have a website? I do. Uh, my website is www.thecenterforemotionalhealth.com. And what age um, children do you treat if someone's in your area? We see kids all the way down to five, unless they're particularly verbal toddlers, and then we may see them a little bit younger. Okay, up to age 21, or do you go into adulthood? All the way into older adulthood. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Well, again, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. As I end each show, you are your child's best advocate. If not you, then who? Become an informed, educated parent right here at The Coffee Clatch. You can find us at www.thecoffeeclatch.com. Thank you. Have a great night, everyone. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.